And this is really in stark contrast to the idea of schools as a marketplace that fuels the competitive drive to get ahead versus schools as social centers that propel the common good. And we are on the side of schools as social centers that propel the common good. And welcome, ladies and gentlemen, boys and girls, guys, gals, and non-binary pals to another episode of All the Above, the show that gives you an unstandardized take on education. I'm Jeffrey Garrett, one of your co-hosts, and I've been a middle and high school principal and a high school social studies teacher. And as always, I'm joined by... What up, family? It's Manuel Rustin, your favorite teacher's favorite teacher. I'm a high school history teacher here in the Los Angeles area. This is year 18 in the classroom for me, and this here, of course, is all of the above. Your home for news and analysis of all matters pertaining to the world of education. And we are back here in the studio-ish, kind of. The home, the home studio, right, Jeff? Still not in the... The, uh, the, the Omicron bunker, I think uh, we could call it now. <laughs> indeed. <laughs> indeed. So it's been, it's actually been, been a minute since we had a video episode because, of course, we, being full-time educators, we were on the move during break. And uh, Jeff, you yourself, you had some time to go visit family and what have you. So we dropped a few passing periods. So if you only watch us on YouTube, if YouTube is the, the only platform by which you tune into all of the above, you might have missed a few episodes there where we discussed all the, I guess we could say craziness around um, all that's happening in education during winter break, during the time when educators are supposed to be relaxing. Yet um, we didn't get to relax too much because the conditions on the ground, not not pretty, not pretty. So head over to your favorite podcast streaming app to catch up on those passing periods if you missed those. And for everybody joining us, whether this is your first time or whether you've been here since the beginning, we just very much appreciate you. We hope everybody is in a relatively good place right now as we embark on another semester of education. Jeff, how are you holding up? Ah, man. Well, uh, well, first of all, happy new year to you and yep. uh, to all of the all the above family out there. Uh, and man, well, I'm, I'm doing OK. I will say that, uh, you know, I resumed work over this last week, this, you know, first week of January here before we resumed filming for 2022. Uh, and I already feel a little bit like I, I need vacation again, <laughs> Well, uh, Vacation itself was both wonderful because I got to go home and see family and I got to see, you know, my siblings and my parents and my niece and my, uh, my youngest uh, member of the family, my little nephew, uh, turned one. Uh, on December 29th, and uh, okay. so I got to go to a first birthday party for the first time in a while. It's been a minute since we've had one of those in the family, so um, so it was great. And also, we were just like straight up playing Omicron dodgeball. So I was Man. like rocking that that KN95 mask for like just about the entire time that I was there, except when I was asleep. So um, you know, it's been an adventure, uh, but we're here. We are in one piece, and uh, we're ready for a great show today, man. Dope, dope. And I do want to remind anybody who's who's watching or who's listening that if you use the Spotify app, and this is not a not an ad for Spotify, but the Spotify app does allow you to watch the video version of the show. If you choose, you could watch the video or just tune into the audio through Spotify. And Spotify also very recently added a feature to uh, give a rating because I guess they didn't used to do the ratings and stuff. So however you are tuning in right now, 
check to see how, you know, whether there's a thumbs up or, or stars or whatever, and uh, give us those positive ratings. They will be very helpful as we embark on our journey to try to reach more educators to be part of this, um, it, this, these conversations about not just educators, but educators and, and parents and community members and really everybody who has a stake in this thing that we call public education. So, Jeff, all that being said, we are back with a full video episode, which means we have a super dope guest who's going to join us today. Talk to us, Jeff. What's on today's agenda? Yeah, man, we got a good one for everybody today, as usual, uh, Dr. Rustin. And uh, today's episode uh, is going to be fascinating because we have a guest coming on who is, uh, frankly, a, a, a luminary in our field. Um, we are bringing on none other than Dr. Anna Marie Francois, who's the executive director of Center X uh, at the UCLA Graduate School of Education and Information Studies. That's a it's a Small school in Los Angeles, Manuel, I'm not sure if you've, if you've heard of it. Uh, it's way, way out there on the west side, so you might not be familiar. Uh, I think I've heard of it. You might have heard of it once or twice. Um, so Anne-Marie Francois, Executive Director of CenterX, and um, for those folks who maybe aren't familiar with CenterX or who don't kind of live in the Southern California region, may not necessarily know that CenterX is... Uh, a kind of a unique entity in, in education in many ways um, and really is the home of all the practitioner programs um, at UCLA. And it is really a social justice educator, social justice leadership driven center um, that places that at the core of its mission and its work. And so uh, Dr. Francois is going to join us to talk more about um, both her work in, in kind of doing this work of cultivating social justice educators and leaders over the course of many decades and also um, the great work collectively being done at CenterX. So going to be a great uh, episode, folks. You definitely don't want to miss it. Sounds dope. Sounds dope. All right, folks, but up first is our Do Now, where we take a look at recent headlines in the world of education. Stay tuned. All right, folks, now it's time for today's Do Now. Let's take a look at recent news and headlines in the world of education. And since this is the first one of the semester, first one of the new year, really, uh, I'm definitely hoping we don't have to do any grades or take any quizzes or anything like that. Let's just learn some vocab or something like that, Jeff. We're just getting back in the building. So how are we going to do the do now today? Uh, man, well, what better way to welcome everybody back uh, into the building than with a surprise uh, trapdoor pop quiz. <laughs> uh, <laughs> so uh, let's let's get ready, man. Caught you off guard. Don't don't get caught slipping. Okay. Quizzes, 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 assessments, testing. We got to do all that, Jeff. We have to. We just have to measure this learning loss. Um, so let's do it then. All right, all right. First question. First quiz question for today, Jeff, is um, why do schools care so much about taking attendance? Hmm. Uh, well, man, well, I think the answer is um, for love and care and uh, deep valuing of the, the presence of every single young person in our beloved school community. That is a Period. beautiful answer. End of sentence. 
That is a beautiful answer, Jeff. Um, that is yes. not why teachers <laughs> like myself are inundated with uh, attendance reports that we got to sign off on, even if we submitted it electronically and all this stuff. It's actually, Jeff, especially according to my students, you ask students, they'll tell you, um, it's just because that's how schools get paid, Jeff. They only care about us mm. being here because that's how they get their money. Mm. So mm. yeah, that's our first story for this do now, for this new year, Jeff, is a, a new bill being introduced in the state of California that will change our attendance-based funding uh, system that we have here. So, so let's get into it. This story uh, comes to us by way of Pasadena Now, and in it they report that California State Senator Anthony Pornatino recently introduced Senate Bill 830, which is a measure that will determine supplemental funding for K-12 schools based on the average daily student enrollment numbers. The bill is a move away from the current system, which bases funding largely on attendance. California is one of only six states that doesn't consider student enrollment figures for determining state aid to school districts. This means districts plan their budgets and expend funds based on the number of students enrolled, but they receive funds based on their average daily attendance. So for example, if a school district has 100 students enrolled, but their attendance rate is 95%, the school district must still prepare as if 100 students will attend class every day, but they only receive funding for those 95 students. SB 830 would define, quote, average daily membership as the amount of aggregate enrollment days for all pupils in a school district divided by the total number of instructional days in an academic year. The California School Employees Association President Shane Dishman, who supports this bill, said, quote, our current attendance-based funding system takes resources away from schools in lower-income communities because they experience higher rates of absenteeism. Now, Jeff, it's important to note that Senate Bill 830 does require districts to demonstrate a maintenance of efforts and allocation of supplemental funds to address chronic absenteeism and habitual truancy. So this isn't letting districts off the hook for truancies and uh, habitual chronic absenteeism and things like that. But it is moving away from those daily attendance numbers as the, the way that schools get their funds. So Jeff, talk to us about this. What are your thoughts? Yeah, well, Manuel, I love, uh, well, let me actually put an asterisk on that. I think <laughs> I love this idea. Uh, and, um, you know, it is, I think it is for sure, without any doubt, uh, well beyond time to move past what, what I find to be like a kind of archaic, punitive construct of school funding that looks at attendance versus enrollment, right? And I hope on just like a face level, everybody can understand why this is a problem, right? A school system has to plan for all of the kids that are enrolled, right, in its, in its school or district, right? And whether those kids come half the time or all the time, that doesn't mean you're gonna like send home a teacher one day because you know that kid didn't come or you're not going to have a teaching assistant on staff because that kid isn't coming on Tuesday or you know or something of that nature, right? Like these are kind of fixed costs. Like once we have to plan for the kids we have, we have to hire people, we have to buy resources, we have to, you know, have classrooms, all that kind of stuff. So from that standpoint, I think it is both like 
very commonsensical that this would be the policy. And also, it really is an equity issue because we, we know, Manuel, that attendance issues are overwhelmingly um, correlated with all the other issues that result, societal issues, I should say, that result in educational, uh, you know, disruption, right? So poverty, societal racism, housing instability, right? Lack of access to health care, lack of access to, you know, to good, uh, stable, um, healthy and nutritious food, um, you know, employment instability and migrant labor, you know, all those sorts of things, right? And so the fact that, that this shift, I think, would take us in a, in a more sensible and in a more equitable direction on that front is a very good thing. However, like with all policy, Manuel, the devil is in the details. And I, the part of this bill, after reading it, that I am very curious about and that I don't understand the motivation and intention of is the part that says um, that uh, the funding that districts get um, back. So, so what would happen essentially is like this bill would return the funds that schools would lose under the average daily attendance funding model, right, um, to, the, to the district at the end of the year, right? Um, and then the, uh, the bulk of those funds would need to be used to fund like chronic attendance mitigation efforts. Now, it doesn't give a lot of definition in the bill itself about what that means, right? And so I have some question about like, does this mean that actually from a from a how I operate my school standpoint, that there's not going to be a whole lot of difference because we're going to get some additional money, but we have to only use that money on this like narrow list of certain things, right? Um, and so I, that's a wondering for me. I don't you know, I don't necessarily think that it's bad to use those funds on a, on chronic, you know, absenteeism mitigation efforts. But I do happen to think personally, Manuel, that this is one of those areas in society where we have an issue that is a societal issue, right? Like kids who are having chronic attendance problems, um, in my experience, at least, I, I guess I, I should say I haven't read lots of studies on this, but in my long career in this profession, overwhelmingly, those are kids that are struggling with issues that are actually not in and of themselves educational issues, right? These are either health issues or these are like life is real hard because America makes it real hard for poor folks and black and brown folks who live in oppressed contexts to survive. And so it's hard to prioritize school, right? Um, and so those are issues that frankly, it is very difficult for for school to solve, right? These are issues that like are employment issues, right? Are are like societal policy issues that we need to fix in other ways. And if we were serious about fixing those issues, then we might see a lot less chronic absenteeism um, from school. Now, if it's just a matter of like speaking to parents about, you know, the importance of coming to school every day or, you know, school is boring and the kid is cutting school or something, you know, those kinds of things. I have no problem with school taking the lead on. But um, I do think this, you know, to me, maybe it doesn't go quite far enough in the direction of um, putting the accountability on on solving the problem 
in the place where the problem actually is. And so I, I would just hope it doesn't exacerbate the like giving schools more responsibility to solve all of the societal problems that we refuse to solve. And instead we call school problems, if that makes sense. Yeah. Yeah. That makes sense to me. I mean, you're right. I, I'm not very clear on how those funds exactly have to be spent, like what counts as mitigation efforts for chronic absenteeism and things like that. But it does sound like just at least, you know, just on the surface level that this is a move away from uh, penalizing the school and towards helping the school do something about the chronic absenteeism without losing the funds that they otherwise would have lost. So, I mean, it, it makes sense in terms of just an effort, a move away from those punitive measures for, you know, that I guess that the idea behind attendance-based funding, of course, is to incentivize schools to do something about absent students. If the funding is tied to the students who show up, then, you know, theoretically the schools would do more to make sure every student shows up. And this bill obviously, um, makes it so that those those funds do have to be used in efforts to make sure those kids show up, but uh, hopefully in such a way that isn't as as harmful to schools. But honestly, yeah, I would have to see, you know, honestly for myself, I, I would like to see a layout of what this would have meant, like for my district, for example, over the last like five years, funding wise, what would what would be those differences and how much of that funding would the, our, my district get back? And then what would those uh, funds potentially be used for? I would like to see something like that to better understand it, but you know, on face value, sounds good to me, this bill. It reminded me, you know, as I was reading this, I was thinking like, haven't we talked about attendance-based funding before on this show? I know it's come up in, you know, broader conversations about equity, but you know, something was like pulling at me. I swear we talked about this on the Do Now at some point and I, I dug through the crates, the all of the above crates and went all the way back to, it was like our 10th or 11th episode total. It was during, you know, our season two. And we had a story there about Manhattan Beach. And I'm sure you remember this, Jeff, Manhattan Beach, mm -hmm. their yep. school system uh, proposed to parents to uh, donate, donate $47 each time for each day that their uh, students miss school for vacation or for other reasons or whatever. So this was, this is a, a affluent school district with a 98% attendance rate that was basically saying like, look, that 2%, is like hitting us hard financially. Like we lose funds because your kid is off on your, you know, whatever, uh, Mexican vacation, Mexican cruise, whatever, and we're losing funds. So, you know, consider donating $47, which is, I guess, what it totaled out to in their district. And I remember us having this conversation about like, yeah, it is silly that schools will be penalized for these individual days that students miss, especially, especially in the case like what you brought up, especially when those uh, absences are tied to factors that are well beyond the school's control, um, whether they be economic factors, health factors, and especially in this day and age where this pandemic seems to be something that will be here with us for the long run in one way or another absenteeism students coming in and out for various reasons i think that's going to be a, a ongoing issue that will affect us for for many years down the line so any effort to try to help schools address the problem and address these these matters in ways that that they can without penalizing schools you know, I'm for that. I'm for that. So shout out to uh, State Senator Anthony Pornatino for this. We'll see where it goes, but sounds good to me. Yeah, yeah. Uh, agreed. I will say uh, the only issue I take um, with what you said there, Manuel, is mm -hmm. I'm pretty sure the uh, the wealthy families in Manhattan Beach are not going on a cruise to Mexico. I was thinking I'm, that I'm pretty, as I said, I'm pretty I was like, sure that's they're, not <laughs> they're they're more of the uh, backpacking in Switzerland uh, kind of vibe, Manuel. Yes. Uh, as I said, it, I was like, they're, they're not, not on a cruise, those cruises. Man. <laughs> yeah. 
Uh, for sure. You know. <laughs> With the common folk, okay? <laughs> yeah, yeah. Yes. All yeah. right, Jeff. So that's the first pop quiz question. What, what's next? What's next? What do we got? All right, man. Well, second question for the day is, uh, what is the last place you'd expect to find a radical humanizing perspective on education? The last place I would expect to find a radical humanizing take on education. Um, yeah, I don't know, because it sounds like there are very few places that do offer rational humanizing <laughs> takes on education. So I'm kind of like um, almost anywhere outside of all the above and two dope teachers and some of the other really dope podcasts and spaces out there. Outside of that, pretty much anywhere. It could be local news. How about that? Local news. Uh, that is a great answer. I, I got to give it to you. Uh, <laughs> almost <laughs> anywhere uh, is, is correct, uh, factually. Uh, for the purposes of this question, the correct answer, Manuel, is uh, Forbes. I would say Forbes magazine, but I don't even know if they actually publish the magazine anymore. Forbes website. Uh, <laughs> um, okay. Imagine, right? We have uh, a fascinating take on education coming from the one and only Forbes, okay? That's the same place that basically makes all its money money reporting on business, including tracking who the wealthiest robber barons are in the world and telling right. us all about them, okay? So uh, fascinating source for today. But uh, let's, let's dig into it. Um, this story comes to us um, by, really by like an opinion piece from Mark Perna, um, who is a uh, kind of, speaker, consultant, motivational speaker type um, who focuses a lot on um, looking at the younger generations uh, in America. So millennials, Gen Z, um, and whatever the people younger than Gen Z are. Um, so let's dig into this. Um, according to a recent survey by the website Teachers Pay Teachers, 48% of teachers admitted that they had considered quitting within the last 30 days. Of that number, 34% said they were thinking about leaving the profession entirely, and 11% said they considered taking a leave of absence. Conditions in education have, as folks know, always been demanding, but today they really are a recipe for burnout, Perna argues, uh, which teachers experience almost twice as much as other government employees, according to data from Mission Square Research Institute. Now, Perna argues that survival mode, where many teachers have lived for the past two years, doesn't allow much room for relationship building. This creates a vicious cycle where students aren't performing, so more burdens are placed on teachers to help students hit the mark, thus decreasing teachers' time and bandwidth to forge a human connection with students that is the basis for all learning. This, Perna says, is leading to a crisis which may be hard to overcome with shortages of teachers and a growing exodus from the profession exactly at the time where we need more educators to address the needs exposed by the pandemic. Now, all of that probably resonates with folks and Perna proposes six solutions which are fascinating to think of. The first one is take stuff off of teachers' plates. The second one is stop preaching self-care. Right? Bubble baths and wine aren't going to cut it. Teachers need care from others, not just from themselves. The third one is don't expect teachers to catch students up. The COVID learning slide is a real and serious problem. And as a nation, we need to be realistic about where students are really at and meet them there. 
The fourth is start rebuilding trust, in particular between teachers and the administrators who oversee the system around them. The fifth one is equip teachers for their real work, right? The work of forging human connection with students. Um, so they need time, fresh ideas and tools to connect, engage and connect with students. Why? And then lastly, he says, uh, raise morale, not just salary, right? More money is important, but it's not everything. So Manuel Rustin, as one of these teachers, that uh, Mr. Perna here is commenting on. I am very curious to hear your thoughts about these six uh, policy proposals or maybe buckets of policy proposals that, um, that he has made here. And um, what do you think about this? Will, will this help avoid the sort of impending exodus uh, of people leaving the profession or is Perna off the mark here? Well, these recommendations here we have heard them from really dope educators for a long time. And the, the recommendation about time, like as you, as you said that, I was thinking back to when we used to do show and tell segments on this show. For those of you who've been watching us since, since the beginning, we used to do a segment where we would bring in something and like use it as a piece to like jump off a conversation. So Jeff, there's the time you brought in a clock, like a literal clock. And we're, we were talking about how little time teachers in the United States get uh, to prepare and to assess and do all these things as compared to teachers in, in other nations around the world. So these recommendations that, that Perna laid out, we've heard them a lot. And they all sound great to me. For me, hearing him say that, I appreciate that it's showing up in Forbes, I suppose. And you know, this was an opinion piece. So, you know, sometimes here and there, sometimes Forbes actually does have uh, somebody contributing who who isn't um, you know, a super radical capitalist. When I say radical capitalist, I just a, a super like hardcore capitalist and and you know, in this case, this slipped in there perhaps. And I hope folks read it who perhaps have some influence or or can consider the burden, undue burden that is being placed on teachers right now to do all these things all at the same time. I love all these recommendations uh, on, you know, on the surface face at face value. These all make sense to me as a classroom teacher. Yes, we need a lot more time. The little bit of time that I do have, and of course this year, I have hardly any time because we're covering all these different classes, covering math class, covering biology class, I've covered Spanish class, I've covered just about every subject um, offered at our school system so far because of our shortage of subs. But even when we did have you know, our traditional period off to do prep or whatever, there's like a million things that you have to get done in that one small period. And it's, it's hard to do anything um, of quality at length um, during that short amount of time. So yes, definitely need time, definitely need more things to be taken off of teachers plates but some of the things that are on teachers plates Jeff it's it's beyond I think going back to what something you mentioned last for the last story it's sort of beyond what the school system is even responsible for like some of the stuff that's on our plates is the fact that we have to be counselors and advisors and mentors and, and teachers of course and do all these different roles for students because like they're coming in with with so much that they are are being challenged by and a lot of times we don't have it in our system to you know get them the right amount of help uh, certainly you know part of those recommendations that he laid out there I would hope somewhere in there is room for more uh, mental support folks um, counselors therapists on, on in a whole you know line of other of other folks who could uh, be in the school building be on school campuses to support students um, so yeah lightening our teacher workload will be very important but some of the things that need to be lightened 
are, you know, the, the, my principal can't just be like, okay, Rustin, you don't have to worry about having to, you know, really support students' social emotional needs as much. We got, we got that taken care of. We're just going to have you focus on teaching history. Like he can't do that because it doesn't work that way. These things are so intertwined and so much of, of what is burdening us teachers is coming from just the, the societal ills and, and challenges that we're facing across the nation. But all that being said, yes, um, these recommendations sound great. I hope somebody, you know, I hope whoever the audience is for Forbes.com, I hope some of this has resonated with them at a time when most of what I'm hearing in terms of like mainstream media about schools and teachers, most of it is of the very, I guess, negative, critical variety, open schools, ban CRT, all that type of stuff. So to get a humanizing uh, take on education and what teachers are really dealing with, to get that type of humanizing take through a publication like Forbes, hey, I appreciate it. I appreciate it. I hope somebody's listening, um, but I'm not going to act like any of these ideas are are new or like, whoa, yeah, he's right. Yeah, he's right. A lot of people have been saying that. So yeah, that's my, those are my thoughts on it right now. Yeah. Yeah. I think you're, you're pretty spot on there, Manuel. On the one hand, <clears throat> excuse me, there's probably very little in what he said that, uh, that most educators who, you know, uh, read about or think a lot about or study these things would say like, oh, that's a that's a new original idea that, that no one has brought up before. Um, but I do think the reason this story stood out to me is like the the venue it came from and yeah. then also just the, the sort of context um, that it had from the standpoint of like, you know, this, this guy, uh, Cerna, is not uh, or Perna, excuse me, is not a, um, you know, some kind of like education scholar, right? So he he definitely still is is in, he speaks a, apparently a bunch about like kind of how to motivate young people and how to like help corporations and organizations understand and value and bring out the talents in their younger folks, right? In a world where a lot of older folks perhaps look at younger folks as like, oh, they don't want to work hard or, oh, they don't, you know, they're sort of entitled or these sorts of things. Um, and so I appreciate that he is a person who is challenging, uh, you know, a lot of thinking in that space and then also seeing the connections between that type of thinking and what's happening with our teachers, right? Because we have this kind of bifurcated teaching force, which is, you know, we have a lot of folks who are older on the career spectrum who are getting ready to retire and retiring in large numbers, and we don't have enough new young teachers coming in to take their place, right? Which is why we have shortages and vacancies we can't fill and no subs, you know, all across the country right now. And so if we don't attend to some of these issues, we're going to be in a, in a tough situation, which we've talked about a bunch on the show over the years, um, of, you know, of, of just not having a workforce who's willing to put up with some of the, you know, just like indignities that come with being an educator. Um, so I'm glad that he's speaking up about this in that venue, and I hope that it does have some, you know, ripple effect uh, in the eyes of, of policymakers about like how big of a crisis we're actually on the verge of, and also like we could do some things about this, and it's not as radical perhaps as you might think to say like, hey, teachers should teach less, like dramatically less. They they should spend far less time in front of kids teaching than they do right now. Right. And we need to train more teachers and raise pay for teachers and do things like this, um, you know, and think perhaps more similarly about teaching as we do with many other professions, which is to say, if you're having trouble finding people, you raise pay. OK, now it's the you know, I don't want to paint 
Amazon or these kind of companies as anything other than the predatory actors they are. But you also see during these times where they're like, all right, we got to pay $20 an hour because, you know, paying $8 an hour, nobody's going to do the work. All right. And, and, you know, that's obviously a different, a different context here, but we're not seeing that same type of swift response in education on this front um, that, that we are seeing in some other sectors of the economy. So it's interesting, Manuel, and I hope, I hope it does make a difference. Yeah, hopefully. But, you know, some of those readers might have gotten to the bottom and then it's like recommended next article. And it's something about how bold and courageous Elon Musk is for, you know, challenging these radicals <laughs> in Congress and this and what, that. So <laughs> we'll see. Or per- we'll see. person of the year. Uh, <laughs> yes. Yeah. Um, mm-hmm. Exactly. So. All right, Jeff. Pop quiz is over. We have a super dope guest waiting for us in our seminar, which is coming up next. Folks, you don't want to miss that. We're going to be joined by Dr. Anne-Marie Francois to learn about a place that's doing really consistent justice work for education. So stay tuned. That's up next. What up, AOTA family? We hope you're appreciating and enjoying this episode. Just a quick reminder, please, please, please do give us those five stars or those thumbs up, whatever, depending on the platform you're watching us on or listening to us on. We very much appreciate that. And if you are listening on Spotify, look down at the little thumbnail and it might be moving because now they are airing our video episodes as well. So you can click on that little thumbnail and see the full video version. And do remember, hit that five stars if you can. Thank you very much. Let's get back to the show. All right, folks, welcome to today's seminar. Thanks so much for joining us today. We are incredibly happy to have you here with us because we have a fantastic guest here today to talk to us about all things related to social justice education. We have the wonderful Dr. Anna-Marie Francois from the UCLA Graduate School of Education, Center X. Welcome, Dr. Francois, to all the above. Oh, thank you both for having me. I'm excited about being here. Huge fan, by the way. (laughs) Well, we are are so grateful to you for uh, for making the time for us. And folks, let me tell you a little bit more about uh, Dr. Francois. Um, She is the executive director of UCLA's Center X, where her leadership guides the work of social justice educator preparation, development, and support for urban school communities. Dr. Francois has 30 plus years of teaching, teacher leadership, and administrative experience in the Los Angeles Unified School District, the charter school community, and UCLA's Department of Education. Dr. Francois is a pioneer in leading education innovation, having helped found multiple schools, including the UCLA and Mann UCLA Community School, and having established Impact, a community-based urban teacher residency program. Her areas of interest and expertise are teacher development, community schooling, multicultural literacy, equity-guided instruction, and school-university collaboration. Dr. Francois's most recent publication out now on Harvard Ed Press is entitled Preparing and Sustaining Social Justice Educators. Welcome again, Dr. Francois, to all the above. And I'm going to kick it over to Manuel for our first question. Yeah, social justice dopeness in the building. Thank you so much, Dr. Francois, for joining us here. 
today. Now, Jeffrey normally likes to point out that UCLA is the number one public university in the world. And, you know, he didn't point that out today. So I'll go ahead and point that out on his behalf. And you, of course, are the executive director at Center X, which is at UCLA's School of Education and Information Sciences. And the, the name Center X, that's a really intriguing name for, for some folks. It's kind of a, a mysterious, a mysterious name. So we're wondering if we could start with having you share with us a little bit about the story of, of Center X and its place in education. Thanks, Manuel, for that question. You'd be surprised how many times I've been asked that question over the last 20-something years that I've been at UCLA. Um, you know, when UCLA was launched in 19, when Center X, I should say, was launched in 1995, UCLA itself was a predominantly white institution um, situated in one of the wealthiest enclaves in California. So if you think about where UCLA and Westwood sit in LA, to the north, you have Bel Air. To the east, you have Century City and Beverly Hills. And to the west, you have the Pacific Palisades and Brentwood. So it's a pretty um, upper, upper middle class um, community. And UCLA is a tier one research institution. And so that's where our Graduate School of Education and Information Studies was housed at the time. Um, and so as a result, we are primarily concerned with, and rightfully so, research, national and international recognition, and the research-based technical dimensions of teaching. Um, and that's what would be expected in a research institution, a teacher education program within a research institution. Um, and I want to say that CENEX started with the teacher education program, right? It grew over time to be inclusive of many other projects, but it started as a teacher education program. But the social unrest in LA that resulted from the not guilty verdicts of the Rodney King trial in 92, I believe it was, changed all of that for us. You know, our faculty and staff, as they began to see literally our social contract erupting in flames across the city, began to have some serious discussions that were premised on the idea that Schooling typically works to exacerbate you know, inequalities in society. And what we were seeing out in the city was a result of that. Um, and we made the brave and courageous decision to begin this th th three year long, I think it was, process that's still kind of under debate at Center X. Was it two years or was it three years? Um, needless to say, it was this three year long process of bringing teacher education, the principal center, the educational leadership program and professional development programs under an organizing structure that was committed to and grounded in principles of social justice, sociocultural learning theory, critical pedagogy, and an ethic of care, um, and really a democratic education, which our dean reminds us is for Los Angeles, not just in Los Angeles, but for Los Angeles. Um, and so as we were creating this, at the time, really revolutionary center, our founders didn't know what to call it. I mean, what do you call something in 1992 that is at a tier one research institution that is seeking to do this? Um, and you know that names matter, right? And so what would we call this center? And they used X as a placeholder. And over time, it seemed to be the right fit because X marks the spot. And this is what we do in Center X. We were doing this before Black Panther. Um, 
X marks the spot of where our center would live. And that's at the intersection of the transformative intersection of research, practice, and justice. And that's the main story, the origin story of Center X. Mm. Wow. Um, I, I love that, uh, uh, Dr. Francois. And um, it's funny because I've heard different versions of the, of that story over uh over the years so it's great to uh to to get your uh perspective on it and um the the new wrinkle for me there really was the connection between the you know the Rodney King uh you know the the riots and uprisings after that situation which as someone who's not from Los Angeles now that I hear you say that that really um you know sort of completes the completes the picture for me and um uh, as as a practitioner here in Los Angeles, I am I am grateful that you and others made uh, the decision to to form Center X uh, when you did. I think there's uh, just so much great work emanating from it that's having real impact across um, Los Angeles and more broadly in education. Um, and you, as we mentioned in your introduction, um, have a new book out uh, that you yeah. co-edited. Uh, along with your your colleague uh, Karen um, Hunter Quartz, um, titled "Preparing and Sustaining Social Justice Educators," and um, in this book you wrote something that I wanted to ask you about, which is schools are the moral, political, and social centers of our democracy. When we are working to change schools, we are working to change democracy. Now, this is really, I think, a, a different conception of the purpose of school and the work around schools than we often hear, which is typically more the kind of like, you know, schools are a place where kids go learn to read and write and, you know, do math and um, succeed on their grades and test scores so they can graduate and go to college. Uh, and that, you know, that sort of conception of what school is all about. Um, so especially in this I guess, moment in history when we are just days from the one year anniversary of uh, the insurrection in, you know, in Washington, D.C. There are questions swirling all around us about what does democracy mean uh, in the United States uh, right now. wonder if you can say a little bit more about what you meant um, with those words and kind of what people uh, maybe might not be thinking about but should be thinking about in terms of you know, school and democracy? Yeah, that's a really good question. And I think it's a question that we all should be grappling with right now, especially after the last almost 24 months that we have lived with the global pandemic, with the racial violence, with the violence at the Capitol. Um, it's time for us to reflect back as it's always the time for us to reflect back on really what is the purpose of schooling. and you know, as you mentioned, schools are where kids learn to read, write, and do math. I mean, the question is, why do kids learn to read, write, and do math in school? Like, really, what's the end game? And for us, even almost 30 years ago, the end game hasn't been about testing in college. And I, that's not to say that those aren't important things. You know, sure, those are sometimes important stops along the way. But the end game for us is as you'll read in our tagline, a more just, equitable, and humane society. And this is really in stark contrast to the idea of schools as a marketplace that fuels the competitive drive to get ahead 
versus schools as social centers that propel the common good. And we are on the side of schools as social center, centers that propel the common good. Um, and so therefore we believe that schools at their best are about democracy, the ideals of democracy that as you mentioned, seem to become more elusive with every passing day. Um, so if an inclusive, robust democracy is the end game, schools should be organized to prepare and nurture a more intellectually and morally ambitious citizenry. Um, so if you think about it, schools are the first and the last places where young people are formally introduced to the values of democracy, where they're practiced, and where they're engaged in really scaffolded critique of how these values are, or as we've seen recently, are not enacted. You mentioned my co-editor, Karen Hunter Quartz, who is just this really beautiful person um, and a scholar. And she describes schools as engines of social transformation. Engines of social transformation, which I think is really beautiful because it imagines schools as vibrant spaces, democratic spaces that help students learn what it means to critically participate as agents of change. Um, schools are places where young people begin to understand the political, economic, social, and cultural challenges, the real life challenges um, of our country, and they form opinions about them in a, in a way where, you know, teachers and leaders provide them with information and facilitate really sometimes difficult conversations that help them to grapple with the complexities of those challenges and form their own ideas about how these challenges might be addressed beyond the classroom. So, you know, I think in many ways, schools take up the principles of democracy in their structures, in their curriculum, um, in their everyday practices. And by doing so, they're really critical and uh, to the survival and success of our society. So, you know, for instance, conventional thinking, as, as you mentioned in the early part of the question, is that we teach students argumentation and deliberation and persuasion in school as really important strategies for academic and professional life. Yes, we do. And these are really critical tools that an informed and diverse citizenry uses to productively and collaboratively solve complex problems within society. And you contrast that to uh, strategies of coercion, right, violence and conflict that we've seen in response to mandates related to the pandemic. And what we have seen at the nation's capital a year ago. So, you know, as, as we mentioned in the book, in response to the, in, in, in stark contrast again, in response to the global pandemic and racial violence that erupted in 2020, what we saw was schools step up to feed families, not just families in particular schools or in the surrounding neighborhood of schools, but anyone that was hungry, right? We saw them deliver healthcare and provide technology. Um, we saw them help young people unpack race and racism and police violence. Um, and most importantly, I think, you know, what we saw is that it was schools, it was leaders, it was teachers and other adults in schools that really held space and took care of what were at the time, and I think still still is, confused, frustrated, traumatized, and really righteously angry young people. 
And I love the righteously angry part because that tells me that schools are preparing young people to actively engage in the democratic process. They're not apathetic. There is a, there's less apathy in schools among young people now than I believe you know, ever before. And so essentially what schools have done, particularly, I mean, historically, but I think particularly over the last um, 22 months, is that they've inspired the next generation to believe in democracy, um, to believe in the power um, of their own voice and the tools to use their own voice um, and the power of the collective to imagine and create a better future. So I know it's a long-winded response. I, I think what I really want to say is that all of that um, is to say that our schooling experiences, I think, prepare us for a particular way of life a particular way of doing things and a particular way of seeing and knowing. Um, and so schools have an awesome responsibility um, to live the democracy of our dream to shape a better tomorrow. And so when you, we don't see reading, writing and arithmetic uh, being taught in schools necessarily for individual growth and development. That's, that is awesome and it is important, absolutely. But at a macro level, we see the teaching of those core content and core ways of being with one another and being in, in agreement and disagreement and resolving conflict and grappling with hard real life um, challenges as a way to advance the democracy that we all envision, a democracy that was not reflected a year ago at the steps of our nation's capital. Yeah. Yeah. I, I love that vision. And, you know, for folks who are listening or watching the show, I definitely want you to to scroll down and, and click on the link for this book. Um, the book, if I'm not mistaken, there's a few former all of the above guests who also contributed to this book. I think uh, Emma Hi Hippolito and Zanika Orange come to mind. So, yeah, folks, definitely uh, check out check out these these important works around schooling for democracy, because at this time, we know that in many, many states across the country, I believe over half the states across the country, there has uh, been legislation either introduced or already enacted um, that runs counter to this vision for democracy. So, of course, Center X and UCLA exist within the context of, of California and, you know, more specifically Los Angeles, which is politically a bit more progressive than other places in the nation. And at this time, even though perhaps within Los Angeles and I know within my own school district in Pasadena, these ideas really resonate with us about the importance of, of shaping a better tomorrow, a more inclusive, um, just tomorrow. We know that there are parts of the nation where a lot of these practices around anti-racist teaching, around critical pedagogy, around some vague notion of critical race theory and social emotional learning and all these things that are being lumped within it. Um, we know that that is strictly banned in a lot of places and, and has been outlawed and books, we're seeing uh, more and more books being banned. and. We're wondering, as uh, somebody who who functions within the the Graduate School of Education at UCLA, what do you think? What do you think the role of graduate schools might be in this moment, as education appears to be under attack in these these various ways? Like, what is the role of the Graduate School of Education in this debate, and what do you think educators should do in response to this really really strong attack on humanizing school spaces? 
It's a great question, Manuel. And I think this is a question that schools of education have been really asking themselves um, over the past two years in particular, uh, because you know, schools of education and universities have a lot of cachet. They've got a lot of political clout. They've got a lot of power. Their research is, um, is what grounds or drives policy, or at least it should. Um, and so, as in all things, I think that universities and schools of education have a moral and ethical responsibility to use their privilege and their power to advance the pr principles of democracy and to actively and publicly, publicly engage in debate around the kinds of the topics that you talked about. Um, and to do the kind of research that informs the, the things that we care about the most when we talk about the political, social, and economic dimensions of schooling in particular. Remember, my life's work has been about public schooling. And so in schools of education, our research cannot be disconnected to the lived experiences of the students and of the educators that we serve or the communities that really are the the center of student, te student teaching lives. And I think that sometimes research can, can, it's all good, right? I mean, UCLA, again, is a top tier research institution. Our research is robust. Our portfolio is wide. Um, but we even, we can do a better job of doing research that is directly connected to the lived experiences of young people their families and the communities that serve them. We should be doing research that informs policy. Um, so conduct empirical research on things that matter to the collective to inform policy and funding priorities. I think we have a responsibility to be vocal advocates for educational justice. Um, you know, oftentimes we ask those that are the most vulnerable to take the most risk. And I would say that, you know, the faculty, staff uh, in schools of education are less vulnerable to make hard, provocative arguments that perhaps teachers, school site leaders, district leaders may not have the uh, ability to make. So help you know they should help us to make the argument, and I think when you make that argument, argument you got to collaborate with the teachers, leaders, schools, districts, county offices of education, and community-based partners as a collective. So you are not their voice, but rather, or no, I shouldn't say that you um, schools of education are not speaking for, but rather helping to give voice to the folks who are impacting young people across the state. Um, I think that's first and foremost. I also think that schools of education have a really important responsibility to turn their curriculum when it comes to teacher and leader um, preparation, development, and support, turn their curriculum and their experiences towards um, experiences that help them to engage their young people around these principles of democracy that I spoke about before and around a critical experience um, 
so that students leave with kind of the knowledge, skills, and dispositions to be, you know, generative change agents in their community. So what I mean by that is moving from teacher preparation and leadership preparation programs that solely focus on the technical dimensions of teaching and leadership and really move towards preparation where you're you're building sensibilities and dispositions towards democracy, equity, inclusion, asking you know adults to really reflect on their identity and positionality and how that shows up in your curriculum, your, your pedagogy, how you interact with students, developing cultural knowledge. You know, I remember a, a time when I was going to school, I was one of very few black students in my elementary and middle school. And it was a predominantly white staff, um, teaching staff. They knew nothing about who I was as a cultural being. And we have an opportunity to get to know our students well and to use, use what we know about them culturally and familially to connect it to the curriculums, um, engaging in critical inquiry, you know, on top of thinking about pedagogy in a more transformative way that helps us to um, prepare students for productive and progressive civic engagement. Um, and I think most important, I think schools of education, I would like to see us treat our classroom where we're preparing um, teachers and leaders as communities of practice where we can bring in other like-minded individuals where we can bounce ideas off one another that lead to kind of progressive next steps in our professional lives, whether they be in K-12 or they be in um, higher education. And, you know, spaces where we can take risks and we can get what we need to do the courageous work of teaching and leading for justice that is required if we want to live the democracy that I that I described before. Um, there was a second part of that question, and I think that I forgot it. I mean, what what you said there is very very powerful and resonates in very big way. And the second part was really like everyday educators, like what what their response maybe should be to this moment. And you know, you pointed out that oftentimes we ask the folks who are the most vulnerable. Um, to be the ones to to go out there and, and and take the stand and take the action. And in this case, a lot of teachers out there are feeling very vulnerable in the sense of they know what's best for their students in the classroom, yet they know that the conversation on in their community or at their school board or on Facebook, whatever, is that these teachers are indoctrinating yeah. students and this and that, whatever. So it's really like what what does an educator do in this moment where their own their own practice is really under attack? Yeah. It's a, it's, these are scary times and that's a hard question because it's scary times. Um, and I think that, you know, we need to move forward bravely, but carefully. And we need to understand, I think, first and foremost, that engage, there are multiple ways to engage in this work, right? There are the activists that are in the front that are public and there are activists who are doing, using their time, talent and treasures in really creative ways to advance democracy, to engage a critical pedagogy, to engage, um, uh, 
you know, the work of equity, diversity, inclusion, and justice, even to address kind of the core beliefs and principles and tenets and constructs that that undergird ethnic studies, critical race theory. And I know that these are not popular labels to you, but you know, we should be less interested in what we call things and more interested in what are the principles of those things that you have labeled that help us to move forward in our efforts around equity, diversity, and inclusion, right? I mean, this whole argument about teaching history, teaching the real history of people of color as somehow un-American, unpatriotic, volatile, is absolutely ludicrous to me. It's history, it's truth, and we should be truth seekers. We are teaching our young people to do be truth seekers. And so when you hear about these policies where, as you said, Manuel, banning particular books, um, we've actually had um, experiences where our, our, our alumni have been asked you know, not to teach critical race theory, not to teach ethnic studies. Well, excuse me, but ethnic studies is not only a, requi a, require, a, a graduation requirement now, <laughs> The state has adopted a model curriculum, and we have to understand, I, know, I understand it comes from fear, but at the same time, we need to, I think, think about creative ways to move through that fear and give young people the experience that, that they deserve. Um, I think that uh, part of, of doing that is surrounding yourself with other social justice educators. Um, part of it is knowing your curriculum so well that you can find places to take up issues of equity, diversity, and inclusion um, where it might not be so apparent. Um, part of it is finding your allies and co-conspirators and not just the usual suspect, but who and what organizations of power, who have power can give you support. So I, oftentimes teachers and leaders are, are squarely focused on their own context, their own school, their own classroom. And there are allies outside of the, you know, schoolhouse doors, so to speak, who are willing and able to leverage their power and their influence to support prog progressive teaching and learning. Um, and so coalition building is really, really important. You know, if you're one of those folks who you are not, you don't see yourself, at the front end of you know a strike, a march, or whatever, um, leave that to the folks who that's what they do. But do something. I guess that's what I'm. I'm I, I I get frustrated about. There's always something that you can do. I John Lewis said, "Get into some good trouble, some necessary trouble," and. As individuals, we can only make decisions for ourselves about what that good trouble looks like. But as a collective, we have access to a lot of different creative ways to do that. We are teachers, for goodness sake. There is no more creative profession in the world than the teaching profession. Let's use our creativity and our brilliance to come up with the answers to that question that you just um, raised, Manuel for ourselves and, you know, and for the brighter future that I mentioned earlier on. 
Yeah, I've, so much of what you said there, uh, Anna Marie, is really hitting home for me. And, um, you know, you mentioned this idea of, uh, as a social justice educator, finding a community of other social justice educators and allies and co-conspirators uh, and the importance of that. I'm wondering if we can maybe um, kind of zoom out on that point a little bit for our for our last question here and actually ask um, you to maybe expound a little bit on what really does it mean to be a social justice educator uh, in in this particular moment and and you and Center X um, you know are certainly well known uh, for for doing the work of training, cultivating, developing. Um, social justice educators, but in this context where there's both fear, as you mentioned, and also just a you know ever-growing list of kind of operational concerns that educators are um, you know responsible for uh, to ensure safe and you know smooth functioning of school, you layer on top of that the kind of accountabilities that that educators face around um, certainly around testing and you know and student outcomes and. Uh, helping to close, uh, you know, achievement gaps and those sorts of things. Um, in that context, what does it really look like? What does it mean to to be a social justice educator? And and how do folks, or how should folks, perhaps, kind of navigate the uh, maybe tensions or competing demands between like these are all the things I have to do uh, in my role versus these are the things that are that feel like the moral imperatives of, right. of being a social justice educator. Right. So this is hard work, right? And there is some uh, vulnerability in the work. I'm just gonna put that out there. Um, but I think fundamentally what a, what a social justice educator, and I use the word educator broadly. So I am not just talking about teachers. I'm not just talking about school site leaders. I'm talking about central office personnel. I'm talking about anyone whose work touches the lives of young people in K-12 school and have influence in what happens in K-12 school. And I think fundamentally, one of the most important things to know about social justice educators is that they understand and they accept that teaching and leading are fundamentally political acts. Fundamentally political acts. Yes, we we care about young. Yes, we care about young people. We love young people, and it kind of gets on my nerves to be honest with you. When we ask people, well, "Why did you get into education?" Well, I really love young people. Well, that's that's wonderful. Um, let's love people. Love people. Let's give them a radical love in the school, a love where we are willing to push the envelope, right, on the kinds of curriculum that we provide for our students, the kinds of activity that we engage them in. Um, there, are, you mentioned all of these demands, and I think oftentimes in society we look inside classrooms to find the answers to all of the societal issues that this country faces. We need to look and, and we need to look at the multiple systems in society and what role each one of those systems play in solving those issues. And if I look at education as a system, right? I can't just 
put the onus of responsibility and all of the demands that you talk about in the classroom context, right? Yes, teachers have a responsibility. They have this responsibility. School site leaders, they have a responsibility too. That's not the same responsibility as what happens in the classroom. Central office staff has, have a responsibility, not the same responsibility of those others. So let's all think about our work and our role in education from a transformative equity and political lens. And what that means for me is, you know, you mentioned external accountability. We just saw a huge influx of funding by the state of California into K-12 education. And I think that's amazing. I think it is, it's a whirlwind that gives, it's gonna give us resources to do what we want, what we've wanted to do for a long time. If we use those resources, well, if we use them to advance the interest of communities that are localized rather than just dumping it into these kind of macro initiatives. But what happens when you get that influx of money, Jeffrey, as you know, in your position with the partnership is there's all of this accountability that the state requires in order to demonstrate that you are you that their money is well invested, right? And so what I've seen that translated into over the last few months is not the liberation that that kind of funding funding could potentially provide schools, but rather we're beginning to see schools adopt pacing plans again, scripted curriculum again, a lot of testing going on so that we can have the quantitative data that shows that money has been spent well and will lead us to this. And what I'm thinking is, okay, so who are the educators, who are the social justice educators at every single level who are informing the legislature to say, Thank you for that funding, but let's let, let's take a, look, a critical look at how the accountability connected to those measures is affecting the day-to-day -day life of schools that in, in, in actuality is, is presenting obstacles from us providing the kind of transformative learning experiences that that money was in, uh, uh, intended to support. Um, and that's not to say that accountability is bad, yeah, we should all be accountable, right? That's an awful lot of money. What I'm saying though, is that we're using the same measures of accountability that have not served schools or young people or communities well. So which social justice educators in what levels of the educational enterprise should be speaking truth to power to the legislature, right? To the leaders in their particular segment. How am I, as a classroom teacher, ensuring that I am doing everything that I can to, to make sure that the uh, evidence of our success is documented so that I can give an alternative to kind of the status quo accountability measures that we have seen and that have failed schools, quite frankly, for, you know, for decades. Um, I think also 
we have to be unafraid. This is this is brave work that we're doing. We've got to be unafraid to teach and lead against the grain. And the only way that we can do that is to be in community, as you said, Jeffrey, with like-minded educators, because it's there where we get affirmation. It's there where we can really grapple with in authentic ways, the hard challenges of um, teaching for social justice and come up with ideas. And it really is the only way that we're gonna be able to have the strength and fortitude to show up every single day and do that good work, even in the face of, you know, everything, all this craziness, quite frankly, that we see in the world and some of the oppressive conditions that teachers and leaders sometimes work um, work against. Wow, uh, Dr. Francois, there's so much uh, in what you, you just shared there, and I'm sure we could probably talk for a few more hours uh, at least about, uh, about what you've raised. Unfortunately, we are out of time for today, but uh, I think this just means uh, at some point we will have to have you back to, uh, to continue the conversation. Um, but uh, Dr. Anna-Marie Francois, I want to thank you once again for joining us today on, on All of the Above. Thank you for having me again. What a wonderful conversation. Um, yeah, thanks so much. All right, folks, that's Dr. Anna-Marie Francois, Executive Director of Center X at the UCLA Graduate School of Education and Information Studies and co-editor of the new book that is out, Preparing and Sustaining Social Justice Educators. We'll have the link uh, to pick up that text down below. Um, that's it for today's seminar, but stay tuned. Next up is our Class Dismissed. All right, folks, we have reached that time in our episode where we'd like to pause for a moment, give some, some props and respect, give some flowers to people out there in the world doing great things related to education. Uh, Manuel, who we got today? All right, folks, I want to shout out Quinta Brunson, who is a comedian, an actress, and star, and I believe creator of the new show on ABC, uh, Abbott Elementary. Now, if you are, especially if you are a teacher, you don't have to be a teacher to enjoy or appreciate the show, but especially if you are a teacher, Abbott Elementary, uh, man, this is a wonderful, wonderful sitcom. So it's a mockumentary style, you know, kind of like The Office and Parks and Rec style um, sitcom, but it takes place in a elementary school in Philadelphia, and it's a, a low-income public school where the teachers are doing their best to educate their kids and, and do what's best for the community despite the challenges of working in an underserved school system. And uh, this is just, this show is just a, such a breath of fresh air in terms of seeing our stories as educators, especially as, as public school educators up there in prime time in sitcom where you're seeing characters like, you know, Quinta Brunson, she herself, uh, I remember her from Black Lady Sketch Show uh, season one. She's hilarious, hilarious. And I believe she's the daughter of a public school teacher, but in any case, you know, she plays the the bright-eyed, bushy-tailed new teacher who wants to come in and just like radically change everything and 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 just you know do the best for everybody. And, and she just she, you know her each episode, she's trying to fix this problem and that problem. Things that the the older veteran teachers are like, you're wasting your time with that. And she's learning that 
the challenges of working in the school system and the, the older kind of gruff veteran teachers you come to learn are, they're like that because of what the system did to them. And they are amongst the most talented and most loving of the teachers there. And, you know, to see this younger teacher being mentored by these more veteran teachers, and then you have the long-term sub who's doing his best and juggling a million responsibilities. And it's all done with, you know, laughter and love at the heart of it. Really, really great show. And I just love seeing our story as educators up there in prime time, because usually when we have TV shows that take place in a school or around education, they're either not really about education or they're just um, not really fulfilling like, like, like this one is. So shout out to Quinta Brunson and Abbott Elementary. If you haven't checked it out yet, folks, check it out. It's on ABC. I don't know what nights it comes on, but it's also streaming on Hulu. So yeah, check it out. Abbott Elementary. I've enjoyed it a lot. Nice. Nice. Love it. I have not yet seen the show, so I will have to uh, reserve comment myself for the moment. But I've heard lots of good things and I can't can't wait to check it out. Um, and well, um, I am just going to add uh, two quick um, notes of, of love and respect and wishes to uh, rest in peace and power uh, to two just giants in uh, in the field of love and justice, I guess. Uh, more broadly, um, globally speaking, uh, that we have lost over the last like week, two weeks here uh, at the end of, of 2021 and beginning of 2022. Um, we lost uh, two folks who have personally meant a lot to me um, and been inspirations to me. Uh, the first being uh, Archbishop uh, Desmond Tutu of South Africa, um, longtime, you know, uh, freedom fighter, uh, advocate for political change and um, one of the leaders of the anti-apartheid movement and the Truth and Reconciliation Commission, one of the you know, probably most concrete examples of putting restorative justice practices into place on a policy level um, that, that we can cite globally, um, passed away, uh, unfortunately. I had the good fortune, Manuel, of, of meeting him uh, one time in college and it's an experience I will, will never forget. Um, and then more recently, we lost um, the great actor, Sidney Poitier, uh, first black actor to win an Oscar in the United States. Really, you know, sort of um, today we love to talk about representation in media and, you know, Sidney Poitier like was representation uh, before there was such a thing, right, as representation that, that had any kind of uh, respect um, or dignity involved in it, right? There wasn't just like minstrelsy and that sort of thing. And so, um, you know, just want to say uh, props and respect to both of them and, um, you know, rest, rest in peace um, as well. So, folks, thanks so much for joining us today. As always, we appreciate you. Uh, make sure you check out all of our content. It's on our website, aotashow.com. You can get to our YouTube page. You can find us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, uh, Facebook, and Twitter. We are at AOTA Show. Check us out in all the spaces. Like, subscribe, share, follow. Do all the things to help us get the word out about the show. We appreciate you, and we'll see you next time. Yep. Yeah.